Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Nigel Gould-Davies, the Senior Fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Nigel has a great deal of experience uh, as a diplomat in the region. He was the British ambassador to Belarus from 2007 to 2009, and has also been the head of the economic section at the British Embassy in Moscow. Thanks very much for joining me today, Nigel. It's a pleasure. It's great to be here again. All right. It's great to have have you on the show again. Um, now, before we start, I just want to mention uh, a recent change in the format. Um, for, I think, about a month now, uh, we've been conducting this podcast not on the social network formerly known as Twitter, um, but uh, instead recording it in the studio. This is a return to past practice, uh, but with a twist. While we won't be taking questions live um, because it's being recorded, um, we are inviting listeners to send questions on the topics at hand in advance. Uh, and I see that a question has come in for today's podcast uh, that's on the topic, so we will address it towards the end. Now, usually we tackle two separate themes, uh, two or three separate themes or developments on this podcast. This time, we're going to focus on a single one, the death of Yevgeny Prigozhin, leader of the mercenary group Wagner. But we'll look at it from several angles. I guess we can say death now rather than presumed or reported death because the Russian investigative committee said yesterday on Sunday uh, that it had confirmed the identities of all 10 people it said were killed uh, in the crash of a business jet in the Tver region between Moscow and St. Petersburg on August 23rd. Now, I, I wouldn't trust everything that the investigative committee says, but this may be the closest we ever come to certainty in this case. Russian authorities um, said there were 10 people on board and, of course, no survivors. Uh, U.S. and other Western intelligence sources told the Associated Press that a preliminary assessment had concluded that an intentional explosion caused the crash and that Prigozhin was very likely targeted. Now, why would Putin um, target Prigozhin? Um, I, I'm not saying the AP uh, uh, named anyone who, who uh, may have targeted, uh, may have caused the crash, but um, asking the question, why would, why would Putin target? There's obviously been a lot of speculation um, that the Kremlin may have been behind it. So the question, why would Putin target Prigozhin, uh, he's his acquaintance for three decades or so, and a man who helped the Kremlin in many ways for many years, whether it was in meddling in U.S. elections, uh, backing Russia and Syrian President Bashar al-Assad in the war in Syria, uh, bolstering Moscow's influence in several African countries, and of course, uh, fighting in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, where Wagner forces were instrumental in the seizure of the city of Bakhmut in the Donbass earlier this year. Why? Well, because Prigozhin's forces um, carried out a mutiny on June 23rd to 24th, two months prior to the plane crash, uh, that brought uh, his forces within 200 kilometers of Moscow 
and presented Putin with probably the biggest challenge of his 24 years as president or prime minister. In short, uh, because he made Putin look weak. But what I'd like to focus on here is not the cause of the crash, or if indeed it was deliberate, who was behind it, but on the consequences, um, whoever was behind it, uh, and again, if it was deliberate, uh, the consequences, the potential ramifications for Russia and its war on Ukraine, and also for Belarus, where Prigozhin popped up and Wagner forces appeared after the mutiny in June. Uh, let's start with Russia. As I said, the mutiny made Putin look weak. I think that was um, really a broad consensus among people who are watching Russia. There was a lot of talk about it being the beginning of the end for him. Um, after the plane crash, now there's a lot of talk about Putin looking stronger, uh, at least in the short term. So my, my question, what's your view on that, Nigel? And in terms of the consequences for Russia, is there anything in particular you'll be watching for signs of how things may play out? For example, will Putin come under substantial pressure from the kind of nationalist pro-war people who, like Prigozhin, are vehement critics of the way the Russian military is conducting the invasion of Ukraine? Or will Prigozhin's demise send, as many suggest it was meant to, uh, will it send a message to those forces and to any disgruntled people in the Russian military and security services that they should not rock the boat? Yeah, thanks, Steve. So there's a lot there. Uh, I will just start by just glancing back at the other uh, fact of the uh, of the destruction of the airplane itself and and just uh, make the observation that within Russia itself, I don't think anyone is really uh, doubting the proposition that Putin was behind this. I mean, it's technically true that um, there are several reasons why a plane can fall from the sky, but really the overwhelming likelihood at this point, the working assumption I think pretty much of everyone looking at this is that one way or another, Putin uh, was behind it. Uh, he certainly had the motive, the means, and the opportunity to do so. Um, a couple of uh, thoughts about the fact that a crash, a plane crash, was the apparent uh, instrument of, of death here. I mean, the first thing is that it meant that uh, not only could Prigozhin be killed, but uh, pretty much, uh, well, certainly a large proportion of uh, Wagner leadership also uh, on board, uh, including crucially Dmitry Utkin. So it was an efficient way of decapitating the organization. In addition, and no one's really drawn attention to this, there were three entirely innocent people also killed, the pilot, the co-pilot, and the stewardess uh, on board. So there's a certain perhaps unsurprising indifference to, to innocent life. There's a fact also that um, uh, Putin is known for uh, the exotic means he chooses to so he uh, regards as traitors, whether it's a Novichok military-grade nerve agent or uh, radioactive polonium, in the case of Alexander Litvinenko. There may be a sort of a, a resonance or parallel in the fact that uh, Wagner, in its march on Moscow a couple of months ago, shot six uh, Russian aircraft from military aircraft from the skies so it just may be there's a, a kind of you know an intended 
uh, sort of parallel there. The final point about it, the plane crash is that uh, there is an investigation underway. They have to come up with a version uh, of uh, the cause. Uh, it's not as if Prigozhin was found sort of lying in a pool of blood in an alleyway, and you can say, well, he just killed and the, 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 the killers uh, got away. Um, they have to say either there's a technical fault uh, or there was a mysterious explosion or it was brought down uh, by a surface-to-air missile. Uh, and only the only the Russian state could do the latter, uh, and very few people could do the second of those, put a bomb on, on board. So let's just see what the official uh, version uh, uh, is, because they do have to go through the versions of the, the investigation. Now, to uh, the consequences. I do not think this makes Putin uh, look stronger. I think the, the whole Wagner affair, from the mutiny through to this, at least part of the denouement, makes Putin look weaker. Uh, and to the, to the argument that uh, he's, well, he's restored his position because he you know, apparently has been able to uh, kill the person responsible for this, what he said at the time, was a treacherous act of rebellion. Uh, I, I respond by saying that it makes everyone even more unsettled now because there was an apparent understanding in that sort of quasi, frankly, criminal way um, that this regime now works, a panyatia uh, uh, that uh, traded, in effect, um, Wagner and Prigozhin's agreement to end the march on Moscow in return for some guarantee of his safety. Uh, that, that word, Putin has in effect broken his word. Uh, and that makes everyone that much less confident uh, that he in future will keep his word to those around him. Now, you might very well say, well, Putin you know, has a long record of lying and dissembling and so on. And that's, that's true to, to those you know, openly treated as enemies, and particularly those outside uh, Russia. There's no reason why his word could, should particularly uh, be believed. But in respect of elites, the people around him, the sense that he generally uh, reaches understandings on important political or regime-related questions, then ag agrees to, the, to that and uh, sticks by his word. That's been a sort of stabilizing element in the regime. Uh, and I think a lot of people here will now say, well, he's so capricious that it's actually hard to uh, have faith in any undertaking he makes even to a current or former close associate. So I think it's one more example of, as it were, the slow degeneration of this regime. Uh, that, that's a that's a very interesting take, um, Nigel. Uh, thanks very much for that. Um, uh, and again, there, there, you know, there, there's been a, quite a bit of debate, I think, about about how it makes him look. Um, uh, and and th thanks for pointing out, of course, the um, you know the the innocent lives lost, uh, you know, killed in this killed in this crash. Um, there there was also, I would say. From from the Kremlin, from the Russian state, uh, kind of not totally ignored, but um, tended to play down and not speak much about the. I believe it was thirteen um, people killed in the in the um, 
when when mm. Wagner forces shot down uh, the six aircraft you mentioned, I believe. So uh, that's kind of par for the course. Now, I'd like to also um, ask. Actually, one one thing I'd like to go back to in in, in what you just said, um, the the idea that which I also found very, I hadn't really thought of this uh, very much, that the, 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 the Russian state, the Kremlin, is going to have to come up with a, you know, a, a reason, a cause of the crash, and that if it's a surface-to-air missile, then that would point to Russia. What about, would, would they be able to say or claim, I mean, I don't know how believable it would be, how credible, uh, but that some kind of rogue Ukrainians or Ukrainian-backed um, person shot it down from the from the ground. They might they might try to do that. Although I would expect that uh, if that was their intention, they would have uh, pointed that finger or tried to make that claim already. Um, and yes, we we know that they can um, uh, concoct stories when it comes to air crashes and a lot of elaborate work uh, of disinformation was done in. Trying to uh, trying to present a false uh, and uh, misleading explanation for the MH17 crash, if you remember, which was brought down by a Russian missile, yes. uh, and they tried to point the finger elsewhere. But I would have thought at this at this stage that uh, well, well, I mean, firstly, if if the claim really would be that it was a Ukrainian. Uh, missile again. They would think they've begun that work already. Secondly, the idea that a Russian plane deep in Russian airspace uh, over Tver, I think it was, yes, flying yes. between Moscow and Petersburg, was vulnerable to a Ukrainian missile. Um, that uh, there's an embarrassing sort of other side to that particular coin. Uh, the implication would be that actually it's it's unsafe for Russian aircraft to fly certainly within European Russia, so I think that would, you know, raise as many questions uh, as as it uh, uh, as it purported to answer. Um, I suppose one sort of further sort of broader point I'd make is that uh, this uh, this action, of course, is part of a broader crackdown on the the more uh, extreme hawkish end of the spectrum of criticism of the Putin regime. Uh, the repression of, uh, of of the liberal end, of course, uh, and the anti-war end has been underway since the war, perhaps since before the war started. And now there is a kind of a, a reckoning. Putin has belatedly realized that his critics to the right, so to speak, now present a threat. But in this case, unlike the others, um, he did not arrest, detain and arrest Prigozhin in the way that he does has done with you know, Girkin, uh, Strelkov, uh, and also uh, Surovikin, too. Uh, maybe he felt it was just in some way too risky and dangerous, given the degree of sympathy and support, at least in some circles, for Prigozhin to actually arrest him, which is what you should do with the head of a uh, mutiny. So I think that point is significant as well. Absolutely. that That's a great point. Um, you know, how much more kind of credible would it, would he be if he how much stronger would he look if 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 he were to go ahead and 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 arrest uh Prigozhin um and good points about about the the idea that um of course uh that would if they say it was 
Ukraine shooting it down, then that, you know, presumably Russians might be afraid to fly anywhere in Russia. And uh, also, you know, uh, you mentioned maybe they would have gone with this story earlier. And, and there were, you know, there have been analysts or you know, pro-Kremlin commentators pointing the finger at Ukraine and, and the West, but those have mostly been kind of more vague, I think, you know, Anglo-Saxons, Ukrainian. So, um, so yeah, thanks very much for that. Now, I'd like to ask also about Ukraine. Um, as I mentioned, the Wagner fighters um, played a key role in the Russian capture of Bakhmut, though at a huge cost. As Prigozhin mentioned, in his diatribes against Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu and General Staff Chief Valery Gerasimov. Uh, and it may have been more of a symbolic achievement, uh, capturing Bakhmut, than a strategic one. But in any case, uh, Wagner fighters have not been on the front lines much, if at all, for at least two months uh, since many of them crossed into Russia from Ukraine to carry out the mutiny. So will Prigozhin's death have much of an effect on the war in Ukraine, whether it's on the battlefield or in terms of decisions made in Moscow? Yeah, I, I'm skeptical that it will have much of an effect, um, and indeed skeptical that it has, at least in recent months, had such an effect. Now, yeah, as you know, the origins of Wagner lie in a close relationship with uh, Russian military intelligence, uh, GRU, uh, and there was a time, and I think it's particularly true, uh, when uh, Wagner was most active in Syria, uh, where it was a significant uh, and effective uh, force. And again, it had these links with military intelligence and special forces and so on. But recall, of course, that its ranks were replenished uh, by scraping out the prisons. So you're looking at low quality, uh, poorly motivated uh uh, forces um, who died in extremely large numbers uh, as a consequence partly of their own uh, limited ability uh, and lack of training but partly also the extraordinary recklessness with which they were thrown into the field uh, I mean in many cases as you know deliberately sacrificed just sent across uh, lines uh, in order to be shot down and thereby reveal uh, the locations of the Ukrainian forces. They were simply, you know, fodder in the, the crudest sense. Um, the idea that um, uh, Prigozhin has been, and Wagner has been in recent times, a particularly, you know, effective uh, or innovative force is, I think, overstated. Uh, and uh, Prigozhin is responsible for the avoidable deaths of large numbers of Russians. Uh, the idea that somehow he has been conducting this war more effectively, more innovatively, um, uh, and therefore uh, merits the kind of, maybe I'll come on to this, because it has implications for the longer term future, this sort of cultish uh, support following in Russia is frankly a bit baffling. So no, I would not expect uh, this to have any uh, significant effect uh, on the field in Ukraine. Uh, Wagner, in any case, I think is more broadly significant for some of his recent activities uh, in Africa. All right. Thanks very much, Nigel. Uh, now, the last question I wanted to ask, uh, that I wanted to ask, is about the ramifications for Belarus. Now, 
Uh, we've spoken about Belarus a few times before on this podcast, I think. Uh, as I mentioned, you were uh, the British ambassador to Belarus uh, in 2007-2009. Um, Alexander Lukashenko, obviously the... Uh, sorry, the kind of despot uh, in charge of Belarus, supposedly brokered the murky agreement between the Kremlin and Prigozhin that abruptly ended the mutiny in June. Wagner fighters were told, um, including by Putin, I believe, that they could go to Belarus uh, if they didn't want to stay in Russia and sign up with the military, uh, or that they could just go home. Uh, And there are signs that some have gone to Belarus, possibly uh, quite a lot. On Friday, Lukashenko asserted that the core of the mercenary group, about 10,000 fighters, will remain in Belarus. Um, And Prigozhin, before the plane crash uh, and after the mutiny, popped up in Belarus at least once, if I'm not mistaken. And I should also add that these developments, the presence of Wagner uh, in Belarus, have, co- have caused concern in the Belarusian opposition at home and in exile. Nigel, what's, what's your take on how all this may affect Belarus? Mm. Yeah, I, I, I mean, ever since the, the apparent outlines of uh, the deal that was struck to end the mutiny uh, in, uh, well, a couple of months ago, uh, ever since that was struck, there's been a lot of sort of improvisation I think that was a that was an agreement made under uh, conditions extreme pressure on all sides, uh, very very kind of skeletal in nature, and a lot of details, including what would happen to the rest of Wagner. I think was essentially still to be uh, decided. And an early version of that was a lot of them would go to Belarus, and and, and so they uh, did in due course. Uh, not all of them, of course. Uh, there are signs now that some have been leaving. Actually, a satellite imagery to suggest that, that some of that has been, uh, some of that deployment has begun to be reversed. Yes. Uh, so there may, yeah, there may, there may be still sort of some lingering uncertainty, some even kind of decisions to be reached, and even disagreements, possibly in elements of infighting, uh, within uh, the the syllabic uh, uh, circles about uh, what happened. I think keeping uh, several thousand there uh, serves some purposes. Uh, in particular, of course, it has uh, been uh, of heightened concern to the Ukrainians, who, uh, of course, inevitably wonder and worry if there is this sort of significant new force, what uses might it be put to? Could it, in due course, launch uh, an invasion? Uh, some uh, uh, new axis from uh, from Ukraine's north, uh, and uh, even if it doesn't, Ukraine still has to anticipate that possibility and keep some units back in case that does happen. You might recall that in the um, the the leaks of uh, U.S. intelligence documents early this year, this Discord leaks. One of the apparent revelations there was uh, the expression of Russian satisfaction that they had been able to perpetrate a deception operation, uh, making Ukraine uh, and by extension Ukraine's Western supporters think that Belarus might itself launch uh, an attack 
they're again they're thereby forcing Ukraine to hold some units away from the front line further east. So with Wagner forces there as well, whether they themselves might potentially uh, fight or um, create the impression they're about to fight, or whether it's a matter of them training uh, uh, Belarusian forces, as Lukashenko has suggested that they might, uh, that all sort of complicates things for what, you know, is in essence a single strategic space, Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. You have to sort of see them all uh, there together. Um, but um, there are no uh, sort of fixed certainties, I think, in the matter of uh, Wagner's fate. So uh, we, and of course, Ukraine itself, should remain alert to the range of future possibilities. Okay, thanks very much. And, and we have, uh, our FERL has had some reporting from our Belarus service um, based in, in part on satellite photos, suggesting, as you said, that uh, some of the Wagner forces who were in Belarus may have left um, camp, a camp being uh, possibly dismantled. So thanks very much for that. Now, um, we're getting short on time, but we have, um, uh, I mentioned we have received a question for a listener, so I will turn to that. Uh, this comes via X. And it's from Roland Marshall. Apologies if uh, I'm mispronouncing the name. Uh, he asks, since uh, Wagner Group mercenaries were reportedly paid double what the Russian Ministry of Defense offers, uh, he writes 200,000 rubles versus 70 to 100,000 rubles, and given the current trend of supplanting Wagner abroad, Will there be recruiting difficulties for post-Wagner Russian units in Africa and the Middle East? Yeah, yeah that's, a, that, that's a good question. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, one of the consequences of uh, at least part of the Wagner forces being folded into regular the regular Russian military uh, would be uh, a deterioration of pay. Now, going back to the mutiny or the period before the, the mutiny, recall that the, uh, of course, we'd seen this escalating, uh, increasingly angry war of words between uh, Prigozhin uh, on the one hand and uh, Shoigu and Gerasimov and the Russian military on the other. I think that the, the thing that caused uh, uh, Prigozhin to pull the trigger to actually make his march was the fact that Putin finally sided publicly with Shoigu and said, well, look, uh, by essentially by the end of the month, by the end of uh, June, uh, Wagner forces would have to sign contracts with the regular Russian military. That's the thing that caused caused uh, caused Prigozhin to to go for broke. And uh, I think the signs are that we're going to see uh, that, uh, if not on a total scale, certainly a very substantial scale, uh, and that will uh, uh, mean that Wagner forces if they do agree to sign these contracts, will be um, accepting uh, less pay. Uh, the pay itself is not, I think by Russian standards, even uh, the, the, the pay that's being offered regular Russian soldiers, it's not, it's not trivial. Uh, and uh, it reminds us once more that um, short of full conscription, because we had a partial mobilization last September, it was... Uh, delayed and short and very unpopular, but short of compelling people to fight. Uh, it's either a matter of paying them pretty well or offering these Faustian bargains to get out of long 
jail sentences. And I think this points to a, a deep and quite important and possibly underappreciated truth that it's not not the case that lots of people really want to fight in this war. Uh, to put it another way, the response of the Ukrainian population and the Russian population when it comes to the question of whether they are really ready to take up arms uh, to, to uh, fight for their country is completely different. For Ukraine, of course, it's a war of defense. Uh, for Russia, even though the World War II narratives are pressed into propagandistic service, everyone sort of knows it's not really a war of defense. So you had to pay people well or, again, reach for the prisoners. There's little mass enthusiasm. And I think that's significant. I think the real test of whether a war uh, is genuinely popular is not whether you sort of sit at the sofa in the evening and shout along with a propaganda that Solovyov and others are spouting out on television. The real test of genuine enthusiasm for a war is whether you're willing to fight. So the fact that um, these uh, salaries, whether it's for Wagner or even for the regular Russian military forces fighting Ukraine, have to be pretty good, reveals the fact that while on the surface support for uh, the war among Russians may be wide, I'm not sure it's very deep. Absolutely. Uh, that's a very interesting point. Um, you know, and, and it takes us sort of inside inside Russia and 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 you know raises questions obviously about about the future and and what will happen with this war which uh, you know of course there are a few signs um, that it would be ending anytime soon um, okay uh, we're going to wrap it up here um, and uh, thanks for the question and thank you very much for joining me Nigel absolute pleasure thank all right uh, pleasure is mine once again I've been speaking to Nigel Gould Davies, the Senior Fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. And my name is Steve Gutterman, Editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. I'll be taking a two-week break from this podcast. The next edition is scheduled for September 18th. Meanwhile, please keep an eye out for my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which comes out most Fridays. Thanks for listening.